from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Tactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, killer robots, and a whole lot of other stuff. So buckle up and let's get started! A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz, with knowledge I persevere, but find out do me a favor, favor. let me in here! And we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a We're back from the road trip, baby. Uh, yeah, the Duchess and I were on this two-week insane road trip from... Ah, it was insane. Uh, we drove hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles. You know what? I'm going to figure out exactly how far we drove. Give me one second. Edit. All right, so I just did the math, and it was 3,400 miles for our entire trip to... Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Tallahassee, Florida, Gainesville, Florida, Crozet, Virginia, Hamilton, New Jersey, Louisville, Kentucky, and then back to Madison. That's 57 hours in the car we spent driving. Insane! But it was a great trip, and it was awesome to see everybody. I'll give shout-outs at the end, and I'll have a video up by August 30th, probably. If you never saw the video I did from our 2008 trip, that was also awesome. You should totally check it out. This video is also going to be awesome, so that'll hopefully be... No, it will be up before August 30th. Hopefully, it'll be up by the middle of the month, but I'm not making any promises, because i got to finish the book. i got to try to find an agent for it. i got to uh, do a bunch of other stuff. i got to finish Mass Effect 3. Um... I've got so much to say, and I'm really in a good mood, and I'm really moving quickly. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to try to get through everything, but I also want to make sure that I don't race the way I sometimes do. I'm going to take it slow, <sighs> one thing at a time, yeah. Um, Tito is fine. Uh, he got a little overwhelmed with the heat, we think, last night. We took him to this sort of emergency veterinary place, and uh, he's fine. Uh, so thank you for your concern, everyone who is interested in that, uh, Christopher Matthew and other people. Um... Yeah, cleaning the keyboard. I cleaned my keyboard out. If you looked at my blog, then you saw the pictures of it. And um, there's a lot of crud that fills in there. You probably don't realize how nasty your keyboard is. So pop the keys off and take a look, man, because it's easy to pop them off. And it took me about three to four hours, maybe more, to, from start to finish, like cleaning the top of each key and uh, getting in between all the little wells. And it's just crazy. Uh, anyway, uh, there's a lot of stuff on there. But here was the funny thing. I posted stuff to Reddit saying, look, there's a, a, a subreddit called Tech Support Gore where people show all the hideous crap they have to deal with in their jobs. Most of them work, you know, cleaning up tech stuff. Well, I posted my stuff there. And this one guy goes, oh, you should have just bought a new one. And I've had other people say that to me, too. You just buy a new keyboard. You know what? That's so stupid. It reminds me of Bart Simpson when they're cleaning, doing spring cleaning. And he's like, I'm tired. I'm hungry. Can't we just buy a new house? That's the American answer for everything. Just, and it's not just America, I know. But it's this phony artificial response to whatever is wrong in our lives, buy a new whatever it is, right? But that's messed up. It's called planned obsolescence. It's a specific thing. There's a really good documentary that I don't have the link to anymore. But if you, I think it was called planned obsolescence. And it was a real thing. Back in the day, when they started making light bulbs, they 
they the the companies that made the light bulbs realized that they would not make as much money if they found light bulbs that lasted for like 200 hours so they said no light bulb can ever be made that lasts more than like 50 hours or whatever it is i don't know the exact numbers but this was a real thing and all the light bulb companies that made light bulbs they all signed on to this and there was this massive pressure there was like a cartel and this is not again this isn't some fake thing man look it up it's true i'm not insane I wrote a thing about Rachel Maddow uh, that you should all read. I put it on the blog. It went up this morning. Uh, so today, August the 1st, which is uh, Wednesday. Uh, yeah, it's up. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I won't go. I won't read the whole thing, although I kind of want to because I had a lot of good points that I made there. But here's what I said. A brief excerpt. Rachel Maddow is a powerful exception to the rule of cable network punditry. Her show is a superb place for intellectually honest discourse, and I love her commitment to rising above the simplistic right-said, left-said binary bollocks. Stepping out of the article now for a second. She is on the left side of the political spectrum, and she'd be the first to admit that. And she's a feminist, and she's pro-choice, and she's, you know, a progressive without reservation but returning to the article now she is the reason why msnbc is greater than fox news there is no one on fox not bill o'rectum not sean hamity not even greta van susten who comes close rachel maddow digs into the truth without abandoning her principles or losing her mental footing and it is exactly the sort of conscious awesomeness that our country needs so hooray for rachel maddow and if you want more information about why I love her so much, I've got lots of examples from Tom Ridge and, and this idiot she m- met up with on Meet the Nation and, or Face the Nation or whatever it's called. Uh, read my article on my blog, Why I Love Rachel Maddow. Um, yeah, Hannibal Burris uh, recently had this thing. His new album, by the way, Animal Furnace, is awesome. And it was turns out he chose it just because it rhymes with his name. Hannibal Burris, Animal Furnace, awesome. Uh, anyway, he has this whole thing that he mentions jokingly, uh, money over everything. So I went and he was talking about how he made fun of his mom saying money over everything. Uh, this is a phrase apparently used by Drake and Lil' Kim and other rappers. I'd never heard it before he, Hannibal Burris used it, and I went to look it up. No, but then I realized, you know what? And I think Hannibal Burris isn't being serious when he says it, but in case anybody is taking that seriously, no, the real game plan is, I realized, I over I, M over E. Intelligence over ideology and mind over ego. And I've been thinking for a while, maybe I should do a show about like my perspective on things like Taoism and Zen Buddhism and stuff, because I have a lot of stuff to say about them, but it's that whole thing about, like I don't know if anybody really gives a crap about what I think about that. Um, but maybe people would like to hear it, and so maybe I could take a week where I just put the news on a back burner and talk about Zen and the Tao and all that stuff for a little while, because when I was folding my laundry recently, I realized that, I don't know, maybe I could talk about that stuff and people would be interested. So write in and let me know, esp at fbesp.com. If you want to hear me talk about Zen and Taoism and stuff, I mean, Alan Watts had people setting up microphones and like arranging talks and like telling, hey, you got to hear what this guy has to say about Zen and Tao and Eastern religion and stuff. I don't have anybody setting that up. If I did, obviously, I would go and sit in front of the mic and talk. But as it is, I have to do all that work. And so it's like me saying to people, hey, you. I mean, imagine Alan Watts on a street corner. Hey, 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 you want to hear about the Tao and Zen Buddhism? Come here, come back. Hey, let me talk to you about this. is going on in the world there's a u.s presidential election which i'm already sick of and we got romney complaining about obama and obama complaining about romney and all their pundits and their t- 
talking heads and the strategists. What a dumb word. Uh, apparently anybody who has a pulse who wants to go on TV, the Democratic Party will call him a strategist, or the Republican Party will say, this is a Republican strategist, and they get to go on TV and say what they think, and it doesn't matter if they have anything worth saying or not. There's a strategist. What's your strategy? Well, you know, and that's the other thing I put in my Rachel Maddow piece is that, oh, it's all about party politics. What does this mean for Obama's re-election campaign? What does Romney have to do to convince voters that he's blah, blah, blah? Who cares? Let's talk about the actual issue involved. No, never happens. Um... Yeah, so there's a, you know, Syria is getting so close to civil war, it's crazy. We'll talk about Syria in a minute. Um, yeah, and other big, oh god, the shooting in Aurora. I have nothing to say about that. It sucks. We need more gun control. There's something I'll say about that, but uh, whatever. Um, yeah, I want to start this week the current events section with this pair of stories that came out of. All right, whatever. Here's the headline from the first one: Islamic fundamentalists in Egypt call for destruction of pyramids. Like a lot of people, I read this and went, what? No way! Uh, but here's the article. Uh, according to several reports in the Arabic media, prominent Muslim clerics have begun to call for the demolition of Egypt's Great Pyramids, or, in the words of Saudi Sheikh Ali bin Said al-Rabi, those, quote, symbols of paganism, end quote, which Egypt's Salafi party had long planned to cover with wax. Most, most recently, Bahrain's Sheikh of Sunni Sheikhs and President of National Unity, Abd al-Atif al-Mahmoud, called on Egypt's new president, Mohamed Morsi, to, quote, destroy the pyramids and accomplish what the Saudi, uh, excuse me, what the Sahabi Amir Ben Al-As could not, end quote. Now, the source for this article, frontpage.com, is a website run by David Horowitz, who is a noted, rabid, far-right nutcase. So while there may be idiots in the Egyptian parliament who might suggest that we should get rid of the pyramids, they probably don't have any serious power of all, uh, and they're probably like the far-right-wing lunatics in the U.S. House of Representatives, and I'm sure you got some far-right-wing lunatics in the uh, parliament of, in the U.K. and other countries where people listen to this. Um, and let's not forget, for the sake of balance, here in the U.S. we have a representative who introduced the Light Bulb Freedom of Choice Act and refused to take part in the 2010 census. I'm looking at you, Michelle Bachman. Uh, so the next article, then, uh, which comes to us from the dailynewsegypt.com, and I don't know anything about the reputability of this source, but... Uh, that article headline says, uh, you know, it's not true. Uh, the, another hoax cleric calls on President Morsi to destroy Giza pyramids. Uh, calls from a Bahraini Sunni cleric urging President Mohamed Morsi to destroy the Giza pyramids were issued from a parody Twitter account online, the Daily News Egypt has learned. Several right-wing online portals ran with the controversial news as a means to raise alarms over the rise of an Islamist-led government in Egypt and its threat to rich historical sites. According to the rumors, uh, so-and-so, you know, denounced the pyramids as idolatry and asked the president to destroy them. It, maybe it was all a hoax. I haven't seen anything in any news source that I've ever heard of before about this story, so I'd be interested in knowing some more verifiable facts, but chances are it was all just a hoax or something obviously political that has no real bearing on reality or anything likely to go anywhere with anything. However, uh, from Egypt, there was the news, and this came from EgyptIndependent.com, uh, and I saw this in a lot of other news sources, that Egyptians protest the visit from Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, so the Muslim Brotherhood uh, won sort of a majority in the parliamentary elections there, and so now the United States is trying to establish some diplomatic ties with this new government, and 
some people in Egypt are upset about that because they, they don't like, they consider, uh, well, let me just read you from the article. Her visit is considered by some to be part of an alliance between Washington and the Muslim Brotherhood against those who want a civil state. The Maspero Youth Union, a group dedicated to defending the rights of Egypt's Coptic Christian minority, also called on Facebook for a mass protest in front of the U.S. Embassy, which is in Cairo's Garden City, at 5 p.m. on Saturday. The protest will be held under the title, quote, No to the Alliance of the U.S. and the Muslim Brotherhood to Impose Trusteeship on Egypt. Uh, the union said that the protest is a way to, quote, a decisive national position by the people who revolted for the sake of freedom and who therefore must stand against the violation of sovereignty caused by continual U.S. intervention in Egyptian affairs and malicious agreements and deals between the U.S. and the Muslim Brotherhood, led by its supreme guide, Mohammed Badi, uh, through private meetings held between the two parties. So I don't, I don't know what to say about that, but I think there's a tendency in the U.S. and probably other places as well that when we see protests in the Middle East, like anybody protesting America, we assume that it's some sort of insane, irrational, just down with the great Satan, you know, this lunatic, uh, just knee-jerk reaction. Americans are involved, down with America. It's, I don't think that's fair. Now, I'm not saying this is a justified protest. I don't have any idea about whether Hillary Clinton is, you know, doing anything good there or not. I, you know, the sign in my classroom says, I'm not cynical, I've been taking notes. So if you look at U.S. intervention in the Middle East over the past 50 years, it hasn't been a pretty picture. So I'm suspicious, uh, but I don't really know what I think there. Um, I said I'd mention Syria. Oh, God, every day there's more reports that just look more and more horrible. And this article I found was not putting my mind at ease. This is an opinion piece from the Ottawa Citizen. Uh, so it's written by a guy named uh, Harry Sterling from the Ottawa Citizen. I guess he's a columnist there or something. Um, yeah, former diplomat, he writes on Middle East issues. So he wrote about Syria. There are too many, the headline is, time is running out in Syria. There are too many irreconcilable divisions within Syrian society and too many rival groups with conflicting objectives vying to fill the vacuum left by the minority Alawite-dominated regime to, further, to avoid further chaos and bloodshed on a major scale. Lurking behind the scenes are extremists hoping to impose their own view of Syria's future. The only way to avoid an even greater bloodbath after Assad's departure is to send a large-scale military force into Syria, as was done in Bosnia, to prevent that turbulent nations divided population from turning on each other unleashing uncontrollable violence and bloodshed so okay that's the end of the excerpt from the article um, the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon recently said talking about Syria that he's scared that the international community is going to stand by and watch what's happening in Syria or what will happen after uh, Assad falls which he almost certainly will do at some point and 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 let this sort of civil war that breaks out go and, and, and have hundreds of thousands of people die, maybe millions, without doing anything the way that uh, he said people in the international community were slow to react to Bosnia and the atrocities in Kosovo and, and elsewhere. And I don't want that, obviously, but I'm also very nervous about the idea of, as this guy says, a large-scale military force going into Syria. Uh, that's what the United States was ostensibly doing in Afghanistan and Iraq is, is sort of trying to maintain order and keep groups from fighting with each other after the fall of Saddam, for instance, in Iraq. It, you know, oh, we're trying to prevent, you know, ethnic conflict and, and so forth. And, and often we end up making things worse, unfortunately, by being involved in the United States, especially when we go in and say, we're going to do it the way we want to do it. I would feel differently. I don't know if I would feel completely 100% on board, but I would certainly feel differently if we had an actual UN 
force that every nation on the earth sort of contributed to proportionally and that everybody shared in the decision-making process, I would feel a lot less nervous about supporting such a military force in those instances. Now, I would still really be against using it in, in most instances, and I would I would caution against the notions of militarism that remain inherent to such a, a, an approach, but it would be a different creature than the U.S. military machine, which right now basically strides around the planet breaking things and, and doing whatever it wants and saying, we are immune from prosecution everywhere we go, and we have 100,000, 200,000 Blackwater private contractors that do the work that we don't want our military to be seen doing or or we don't want to have to pay people to do it this way. Or, I mean, whatever. There's all sorts of problems with military intervention, even ah, any way you go. So I don't know. But that, that notion that there's these major ethnic groups in major conflict in Syria, such that it's important to realize that even when Assad falls... Um, it, 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 you know, it doesn't mean the end of the conflict, um, as we saw in Egypt, right? Like, as soon as uh, Mubarak left, okay, that was a great day, yes, finally the, the huge beast falls. Now what, right? Okay, so I just want to make sure people don't have this idea that everything's going to be peaches and keen. Um, so, whatever. I don't, I don't know what I think about what should happen in Syria, or what I would vote for or support. Um, the people of Syria should get to decide what happens next in Syria. And people of Syria... Please handle that without shedding blood. Because <laughs> everyone knows people in Syria listen to me. Have you listened to the new didactic syncast yet? No, you sound Indian. Um, all right, moving on. Uh, there was this very interesting article I saw in the New Times of, uh, I think, is this Rwanda newspaper? Rwanda's first daily newspaper on the web, newtimes.co.rw. News from Rwanda, and this is an article by a guy named James Tasamba, and the headline is, Africa Losing Billions Through Multinationals. Uh, here's what he writes. Multinational corporations operating in Africa are involved in illicit transfer of most of the $1.5 trillion they make in Africa each year back to the developed countries, hurting African economies in the process, a new report shows. Uh, the new report on illicit financial flows from Africa, scale and developmental challenges, this name of the report, blames multinational corporations for draining hard currency reserves from the continent, stimulating inflation and reducing tax collection and deepening income gaps. Now, it doesn't say where this report from, so I'd like to know more about that, but, you know. Um, it faults the multinational corporations for, quote, perpetuating Africa's economic dependence on other regions, end quote. Uh, the report also says, quote, the depletion of investments and stifling of competition caused by these illicit transfers actually undermine trade and worsen the socioeconomic fabric of poor communities in Africa. Uh, the report also calls on countries to strengthen regulatory frameworks. So when we talk about Africa, a lot of times, even people in the West, a lot of times people say, uh, even people in the, what am I talking about? I, I've only ever had discussions with people in the West about Africa. I've never been in Africa and talked to, let's see, did I ever talk about Africa with people while I was in East Timor or Brazil? I don't think I ever have. So no, I've only ever had discussions about Africa with people in the West. Um, I'm trying to sound fancy. I feel like Charlie and Barton Fink, look at me trying to get fancy. Is the egg showing or what? Um, no, but a lot of people think of Africa like, oh, it's a pity case. They don't need charity. They need a hand up. And trade is the way to do that. And blah, 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 blah. That's fine. But if what this report says is true, and these multinational corporations are going in and, like, you know, using illicit transfers of all this money out of Africa, first of all, I wouldn't be surprised because that's what they do. They go to desperate places and they find ways to exploit the people there. 
Uh, and I'm reading Predator Nation by Charles Ferguson. Oh my god, quick aside here. Hang on a second, tangent. Uh, I need a noise for tangents. Like, uh, and then when you come back from the tangent, <laughs> that would be great. Why don't you just make the noise right now, Eric? Yeah, I will. Thanks, Eric. Um, the, the, the CEO of Bear Stearns, apparently for a while, like between like 2006 and 2009 or something, he used to like smoke pot all day long and play bridge instead of attending board meetings and like answering his cell phone. And, and that's one of the reasons Bear Stearns went under. Um, but as Charles Ferguson points out in his book, Predator Nation, which everybody should read, uh, that that's an example of a CEO who is um, unusual because he's just plain out of it. And he actually probably didn't know what his traders and his math geniuses were up to. Not like many other firms who were actively involved and knew exactly what was going on. And therefore it becomes explicit intentional criminal activity rather than just probably criminal and fraudulent sort of out of itness, right? The fallacy of empire's ineptitude. In, in some ways, the fact that this dude from Bear Stearns was smoking pot and playing cards all day it gives the other bankers the ability to say, well, we didn't know. So anyway, um, coming back from the tangent, uh, yeah, Africa is being screwed by multinational corporations. Meanwhile, oh, this broke my heart. There's this other article from the BBC that said, the headline was, Zimbabwe thief asks for life jail sentence. He wanted, he got caught stealing something. He wanted to go to jail for life. He said, quote, to the judge, quote, life in prison is better than life in the streets, end quote. And he was he was given a sentence of like three years, and apparently he got really upset. It oh god, Chris Rock talked about that once upon a time. He said, "If you live in an old project, new jail ain't that bad." Um, and how what a sad statement about where our civilization is right now. When you have people who would rather be in prison for the rest of their lives, because at least you get certain minimal needs met. How pathetic. We should be ashamed of ourselves as, an, as a global, as a species. That's a mark of shame on us all. Republican, Democrat, rich, poor, all of us should be ashamed that we could not, by this point in our evolution, work out some sort of civilization structures that make sure that everybody has a safe place to live, three meals a day, and some basic medical attention. Food, clothes, and shelter. Right, dead prez? <sighs> Meanwhile, in New York, uh, there's a new report that said that, and this is from The Guardian, uh, the NYPD, quote, consistently violated basic rights during Occupy Wall Street protests. Uh, the first systematic look at the New York Police Department's response to Occupy protests paints a damning picture of an out-of-control and aggressive organization that routinely acted beyond its powers. Now, in the unlikely event that I have any listeners in New York City who have ever had to deal with the police, for instance, anybody who's not white in New York, uh, you probably hear that and you go, duh, anybody who didn't think that the NYPD was an out of control and aggressive organization that routinely acts beyond its powers, that's what life is like for most, especially poor black people, uh, on a day-to-day basis, that's just regular par for the course, that's life in LA, as Paul Mooney said about a very different situation, oh no, he said, under police chasing him in broad daylight, that's life in LA, they chase my ass all day long. 
Uh, continuing with the article, in a report that followed an eight-month study, and there's a PDF to it on the uh, website for The Guardian, uh, researchers at the law schools of NYU and Fordham accused the NYPD of deploying unnecessarily aggressive force, obstructing press freedoms, and making arbitrary and baseless arrests. Not to mention, as you probably all know, there was that incident where there were a bunch of females protesting in one part, and then they cordoned them off with this orange netting or whatever, and then the dude went in, and his name was Bologna. I remember it was some officer named Bologna who, like, sprayed in there, and, like, the women were tear gas. It was horrible, just terrifying. He was torturing them. Like, basically, he was torturing them with this chemical weapon they sprayed right in their faces. And I remember at the time, there were a bunch of people, especially, like, on the anarchist subreddit, which, who were saying, like, here's his name, here's his home address, go get him, people. Like, let's screw his life up. And I remember saying at the time, that's messed up. We should try to prosecute him according to the law. He should be fired. He should be tried, et cetera, et cetera. And I had a lot of people told me like, oh, whatever, man, you're just a naive idiot. That's not the way the system works. The cops are going to protect this guy. The legal system is going to protect this guy. The courts are going to protect this guy. And I actually don't know what the status is of that one dude. And I don't have a lot of hope that this new report will bring a lot of changes to the NYPD, as it should. I mean, we should see some drastic changes. If you're part of an organization that is described as a report, as being an out-of-control and aggressive organization that routinely acts beyond its powers, you have a responsibility to change that organization. And if it's bad enough, you have a responsibility to step down and quit, right? Like that dude did from the Clinton administration when it was passing its welfare, quote-unquote, reform. You have a responsibility to, some at some point, criticize or leave the organization you're part of if you know that it's doing things that are wrong. So... Uh, anyway, so what was I saying? The point is, I don't think that this... W it should lead to changes. It probably won't. Um, I, I think it's a disgrace that, yeah, that that police are allowed to act with such brutality on so regular a basis, and we don't see more things changing to see officers punished, systematic changes. I mean, I, I suppose I haven't really done the research, and I haven't heard from people who have... I suspect it's probably better than it used to be, you know, 50 years ago, but it's not nearly where it should be, and, and we need to push for more changes to make police accountable to people and whatever. Um, another article about the United States, uh, this headline was Obama related to the first documented slave in the United States. And this is from USA Today. It says, after years of research, Ancestry.com has determined that Obama is the 11th great grandson of John Punch, the first documented slave in American history. Quote, two of the most historically significant African-Americans in the history of our country are amazingly directly related, said Ancestry.com genealogist Joseph Shumway. Ancestry.com also points out that, quote, remarkably, the connection was made through President Obama's Caucasian mother's side of the family. So that's very interesting. And if you want to know more about that, I'll put the link, as all these articles, there will be a link on my website, fbesp.org. You can find out more about Obama being related to the first documented slave in the United States. Meanwhile, uh, Mitt Romney was, he went to the Middle East for some reason. Oh my God, how weird was this? And while he was there, he talked about... Israel and Palestine, which, why? Mitt Romney, you don't know anything about this. Look, people, you know me. I don't often say I don't have an opinion or I don't know enough about that. But once in a while, I do say that. And I think we should be able to say that, all of us, when we don't know about a thing. And this was an instance where Mitt Romney, but I know when you're running for president, you're never allowed to say that. I don't really know about that. Because if you did, people would be like, oh, he doesn't, he hasn't done the research. He doesn't have an opinion. He's not decisive enough. Blah. So instead, you get confident morons like Herman Cain going, I don't know who's the president of anywhere, and I hope they ask me about the leader of Becky, 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 Stan, Stan. 
Uh, anyway, Mitt Romney was talking about Israel and Palestine, and he said, I'm quoting, this is a direct quote from Mitt Romney. There is a link on my website. Go check it out. This is from The Guardian. Uh, quote, as you come here and you see the GDP per capita, for instance, in Israel, which is about $21,000, and compare that with the GDP per capita just across the areas managed by the Palestinian Authority, which is more like $10,000 per capita, you notice such a dramatically stark difference in economic vitality. You know, it's, it's the difference in vitality. And the implication, of course, end quote, the implication, of course, is, well, there's something wrong with the Palestinian people. Why can't they get it together? And the AP ran a correction immediately, which said, quote, the economic disparity between the Israelis and Palestinians is actually much greater than Romney stated. Israel had a per capita gross domestic product of about $31,000 in 2011, while the West Bank and Gaza had a per capita GDP of just over $1,500, according to the World Bank. Uh, so Romney said 21,000 in Israel, 10,000 in Palestine. Uh, the truth is 31,000 in Israel, 1,500 in Palestine. So think about that, or, you know, occupied West Bank and, and you know, the independent Gaza Strip. Uh, so, and this is one of the things I said in my Mad Owl piece. There's this notion that goes around that people have this attitude that, like, well, you know, Romney said this, and then in the United States it would be the Obama campaign said this, and that's what both sides said, so that's the balance. You just you get to pick which side of reality you want to live in. And I say no. What the Guardian did here is correct. What the Associated Press did was correct. Here's the truth. According to the World Bank, here are the numbers. This is not a he said, she said type of thing. This is, Rachel Maddow had this one moment that I talked about where she goes, this is not a math is hard type of situation, <laughs> which is just awesome because she's alluding to the whole Barbie fiasco. But no, it's true because, and again, th there's not, as Lewis Black said, there have to be some fact facts. You can't just have everybody, you get to have your own opinion, but you don't get to have your own facts, right? And that's so important. I can't. You know, intelligence over ideology, man. It has to be about these are the facts. Let's all start with what are the facts. And you can say, like, again, the AP said this is, these are the numbers according to the World Bank. Okay. Now, if somebody has a beef with the way the World Bank computes the numbers, fine. But I think we'd all probably agree. Let's start with the World Bank numbers about this situation he's talking about. And then we can talk about why is the GDP for the West Bank of Gaza so low. And it's not about economic vitality. And it certainly has nothing to do with, like, the culture of Palestinian people or the culture of Israeli people, which, as a Jew, if you were to talk about that and try to put it in terms of, like, some cultural element, which is how every news report I saw talked about, I'm starting to wonder, what is Mitt Romney saying about Jews? Oh, you're just so good with money. It's the crime. No, come on, get it together. What the hell? So there have to be some fact facts. Oh, and finally, this was great. This is the last thing in current events. Uh, there's this thing. <laughs> I had to buy this guy a steak dinner or something because he was uh, No, wait, uh, uh, a barbecue tofu dinner. Wouldn't that be better with some fresh greens on the side? Um, <laughs> there's this guy, Larry Gabriel, writing for some website, Metro Times. I don't know. I'll give you a link on the site. Uh, but it's called, the headline was, A Real Corporate Choice for VP. The subhead says, If corporations are Mitt Romney's peeps, why not pick one as his running mate? And it's all about, he should have a corporation as his vice president. If you think that they're people, Mr. Romney, as you've said, why don't you make McDonald's your running mate?
thing about that song when we were on our road trip at one point uh we would when we would switch out driving me and diane uh at one point she was driving and uh, that means i was in charge of choosing what music or comedy or podcast or audiobook we would listen to next and i was sort of reading out what we had in the different playlists and i mentioned in the hip-hop playlist we have wu-tang and she goes yeah wu-tang and i'd never seen her express a desire to hear Wu-Tang before. So I was kind of surprised, but I was like, yes, awesome. Okay, here we go. And so we listened to it and I explained that when I first got the album, I somehow ended up with the clean version. So for about three years, I actually thought that the song from the Wu-Tang Clan was called Shame on a N because that was the radio edit they made of that song, Shame on a White Supremacist N-Word. So I thought it was called Shame on a N. Which meant, later on at least, that I could get the joke when uh, Jay Smooth from Ill Doctrine talked about shame on a no. And, and anyway, uh, so yeah, but then we got to cash rules and, and I, was, I was, you know, I, I often look at Diane and I remember how lucky I am and how awesome she is and how amazing uh, our, our, our love is and how fortunate I am, especially given the crazy years of feeling like I would probably never, maybe never, and not, pro- I, I spent some years thinking like, oh man, I don't know if I'm ever going to find like the one, the person that I want to spend my life with. Anyway, so I've had a lot of those moments where I look at her and I'm just like, wow, I can't believe how lucky I am. I'm I'm the luckiest guy in the world. But this was another one of those moments where I was like looking at her going, cream, get the money, dollar, dollar, billion. I was like, there is no woman on the face of the earth more awesome than her. Anyway, uh, let's talk about actual money and economics. I mentioned Charles Ferguson, so I don't need to go on about that. But let's talk about some high-frequency trading because it's been a while. This is an article from Forbes.com, and it said the headline is, Are Algorithmic Monsters Threatening the Global Financial System? And this is talking about, oh, Dark Pools. The book is called Dark Pools. If anybody's looking for a gift for me, I'm interested in buying or getting the book Dark Pools by Scott Patterson because I'm dying to read it, and I won't have any time in the next 10 years to read it, but maybe I could put it in the bathroom or something and read some of it there because it's all about this high-frequency trading stuff. So if any of you have access to this book and your local library or something check it out read it and i'm going to try to get my hands on it and read it because it looks very exciting um so this is in forbes it's by a guy named david line weber i write about markets of all flavors and computers that want your job whatever uh so here's his review of dark pools scott patterson's new book dark pools has some remarkable quotes quote we feel we created a monster says one of the creators of island the pioneering electronic securities exchange one of these high frequency traders um here, this is a direct quote from the article, I guess. Sometimes I'll editorialize in my show notes so I know what to say when I'm, re- but usually I'll put that, I will always put that in brackets, and I didn't. So this is from the article, the review of the book. Here is the killer and current apocalyptic quote from John Bates, founder of a trading systems firm with some dumb money users. Quote, and they, that that's one of the telling signs. Hang on, uh, tangent. Uh, the uh, Craig Ferguson, Charles Ferguson, whatever his name is, Predator Nation said he talks a lot about this relationship between the traders, the the people in the know, the 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 deal makers, and the dumb money users or the suckers. And this is all language that comes right out of the the internal literature and the the memos and the emails of these traders and bankers and, and executives. 
they they see all of the rest of us as suckers, okay? So when you watch the movie Margin Call and there's that scene where the dude's driving in his high-powered convertible and he's like, and he's like, screw all these people, I hate them, they suck, they bastards, you take them for every penny. That's exactly how they see us. It is not a fanciful, you know, oh, that's just Hollywood being Hollywood. No, it's not. That's how they see us. Ice Cube said, here's what they think about you, okay? And what they think about you is that you're stupid, easily manipulated suckers, okay? And they see you as an opportunity, and they don't see your pension plan, local municipalities, as something they can help to encourage and foster to grow so that everybody does better. No, they see it as a low-hanging fruit so they can defraud you and they can steal Steal your money the way that uh, uh, Goldman Sachs... No, it wasn't Goldman Sachs. It was... I don't remember exactly who it was, but I'm just reading this part in Predator Nation now about how this one trading firm... And I could go get the book from the other room, but... Oh, other room. What a far way to walk. Um, They they defrauded uh, AIG in a way that they knew they were screwing AIG over. And then when AIG got bailout money, the first thing this bank did... I think it may have been Goldman Sachs. The first thing the bank did was say to AIG, we want the money you owe us. They didn't say to AI, to the regulators or to the Federal Reserve or anybody, hey, it looks like AIG is going to be in trouble. No, they knew AIG was going to be in trouble, but they said, how can we make some more money off that trouble that we are causing AIG to be in? And they found another way to get more money from AIG. And then they said, oh, AIG, how could you do this to us? It's it's unbelievable. It's boggling. Okay, so anyway, back from the tangent. I know that's probably a different sound than I made before. Whatever! I'm a busy man! So here's the quote. I haven't even gotten to the quote yet. From John Bates, founder of a trading systems firm. Quote, Fears of algorithmic terrorism are not unfounded. This type of scenario could cause chaos for civilization. I'm going to pause and let that sink in. In fact, I'm going to read it again, because this is not me. This is not some guy wearing a tinfoil hat. This is not some lunatic hippie playing hacky sack and eating from granola from a fanny pack slung over his shoulder. This is from a founder of a trading systems firm, okay? He said, quote, fears of algorithmic terrorism, and I mean, just think about that term, algorithmic terrorism. Nerds with math books doing terrorism through computers and high-frequency trading optic fiber optic cables under the ocean getting attacked by sharks that we've talked about in the past. Fears of algorithmic terrorism are not unfounded. This type of scenario could cause chaos for civilization. That's what he said. Okay, so... Then I'm starting to think, okay, dude, what if the terrorists trained the sharks to eat the cables? And then it was like, ah, we don't know what's going on. I bet it's those sharks again. Send some robotic fish butts down to attack the sharks. And then you'd have sharks and robotic butts fighting it out in the ocean. Ah, what's going on? It's algorithmic terrorism. It sure is exciting to watch. Yeah, it is. That'd be an awesome TV network. They should totally do that. They should give the terrorists some sharks, and they should give the high-frequency traders some of the robotic butts that they're working on. And the, no, 
they're not in Japan, they're in America. Uh, but I think it's a Japanese developer who's, I don't remember where the robotic butt is. I'm sorry for not having that information in front of me. But wouldn't that be awesome? And you could put it on TV. The robotic butts against the terrorist sharks fighting it out in the shallow waters of the eastern seaboard in an attempt to protect or destroy, depending on which team you're betting on, the high frequent, the high speed fiber optic lines between New York and London. And then once we move it to the, what was it, the microwave systems that beam stuff into space, and then we talked about the neutrinos going for high frequency trading. I don't know what you'd use to try to disrupt that, but I'll bet you could find something as exciting as shark uh, attacks. Anyway, moving back to coming back, uh, this is from the book now. This is amazing. I tried to quote this. Christy, if you're listening, this is what I tried to quote to your class, and I couldn't remember the exact numbers. Here are the exact numbers, and it's in the book Dark Pools by Scott Patterson. Quote, in 1945, the average length of time an investor held a stock was four years. 1945, the average length of time an investor held a stock was four years. By 2000, it was eight months. In 2008, two months. The average today is 22 seconds and dropping. Think about that. Again, when this whole notion of markets being rational comes up, whenever anybody tells you, let's privatize social insecurity and put it into the stock market. The average length of time an investor holds a stock today is 22 seconds. Now tell me how much we should rely on Wall Street. Now tell me, please, how rational these markets are. Now tell me, please, how secure we can feel about investing our future ability to clothe and feed ourselves is if we put it into the stock market. The average length of time uh, an investor holds a stock is 22 seconds and dropping. By the time I'm reading this, it's probably 21 seconds. Who knows? And how far will it go? It's not getting longer. And, you know, some people would say maybe it shouldn't get longer, whatever. But 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 that does not argue well for the stability or rationality of markets. No, it doesn't. No, it does not. And certainly not without any kind of regulation of any kind, which is where we are with this high-frequency trading. No kind of regulation. Any People are just like, they're probably not going to destroy everything. We're probably not going to have chaos for civilization with terrorist sharks and robotic butts fighting it out in the North Atlantic. It'll probably won't happen. It'll probably be fine. You know what? I make that joke because... That's actually my motto with a lot of things in life these days. I look at stuff and I go, it'll probably be fine. Something, you know, light switch on the fritz in our house, it'll probably be fine. You know, I, I can't find something I sort of need. I'm like, eh, it'll probably be fine. It'll turn up, right? Like, And, you know, sad to say, okay, I take that attitude with my teeth when I shouldn't. I don't need to go to the dentist. My teeth will probably be fine. And I think of the Simpsons when Marge adopts Nelson sort of. And she's like... I'm going to take you to see the dentist. Don't you, doesn't that hurt your teeth? Oh, yeah, because Homer wanted to open a beer bottle. And so Nelson's like, here you go. And he smiles, and Homer puts the beer bottle into his teeth, and, and it opens the beer. And Marge goes, doesn't that hurt your teeth? And Nelson says, ah, my teeth hurt all the time. I just try to think about motorcycles. So anytime, uh, you know, I think about the dentist, I always go, eh, my teeth hurt all the time. I try to think about motorcycles. Uh, and then Marge says, I'm going to take you to Dr. Thompson tomorrow. And uh, Nelson says, a doctor for your teeth what's next a lawyer for your hair um why did i mention that i don't remember oh yeah it'll probably be fine so that's the point that that's the that's back from the tangent uh that's the attitude a lot of people seem to have about this high frequency trading stuff it'll probably be fine we don't know what's going on we don't need to know 22 seconds is a long time for investors to hold on to a stock
And, you know, what? don't forget, like I said before, how are these investors deciding which stocks to hold for 22 seconds? Houseplants and nipples on the page three models, okay? So, yeah, there's your rational market, all right? Moving on. Iceland hires former police lieutenant to track down bankers who wrecked its economy. Yay, Iceland! Good move! Nice job, dude. The government has appointed a white-collar crime bounty hunter who wants to haul your behind in. Alive, to be sure. Uh, this is from businessinsider.com, and this is Hauksen's job description according to Press Europe's translation of the piece. Quote, On one hand, we have to investigate all suspicion of fraud and offenses committed before 2009. On the other hand, we bring the lawsuits against the suspects to court ourselves, Hauksen explains. This is, quote, no, totally new method, which allows the investigators to to follow the case and the judicial system to know the cases like the back of their hand. This is indispensable in order to, quote, compete with the well-prepared defense attorneys. Yes! Amen! Please, when you get done in Iceland, Mr. Hawkson or Ms. Hawkson, I don't know, uh, please come to the United States and go after the CEO of Bear Stearns. I understand he used to smoke marijuana all day and play cards instead of running the bank. And that's one of the reasons why the U.S. economy and the global economy crashed and burned in 2008. Charles Ferguson has done all of the basic research you need. Just read Predator Nation and you will know everything there is to know about where to start investigating this stuff. Because nobody, nobody in the United States is doing anything about it. And we really need a former police lieutenant who will be a white-collar crime bounty hunter. Dude, I'll pay you $1,000. I'm serious. I should start a Kickstarter with this. I'll pay you $1,000 of my own money if you can give me one criminal prosecution that ends in jail time for a CEO of a Wall Street firm. Who wouldn't donate $100 to that? Tell me, seriously. I'm, I'm, I'm totally serious about this. We should totally pool our money. And I don't have time. I'm writing a book, making a fun movie about our road trip. Somebody should start a Kickstarter that says, "Here, we'll raise a if we can raise a million dollars in like 24 hours for the Ouya, we can do this, people, right? We'll we'll get a fun and Omil could spearhead this. Omil, dude, you raised all that money to shut that dude up. You know, people know what I'm talking about. It's true. I'm not insane. Oatmeal could do this. Oatmeal, please, listen. I'm asking you, Oatmeal. Here's me. I'm, I'm actually holding my hands up in this begging mode right now. Please, Oatmeal, do this. Get pe You have the power to motiv mobilize people, all right? Now, I know that was just sort of funny about your intellectual property, but, but this is the most important thing you could possibly do right now. Mobilize people again. And I don't only, I'm not trying to make you do this like every month because I'm sure you have people who are like, next time you do that sort of thing, because he gave the money to the World Wildlife Federation, I think, and like the American Heart Association or something, American Cancer Society. I don't remember which charities it went to. But he raised a lot of money pretty quickly because he has a lot of very devoted fans. It's kind of Tyler Durden-ish in a way. It's like his name was Robert. His name is the Oatmeal. Um, no, but here's what you should do, Oatmeal. And I'm not, because you probably have people every month like, oh, raise money for me now. And, and, and. Whatever. Here's what I want you oatmeal. Seriously, get people to donate money, and however much money you raise, you raise a million dollars to hire a white. There are apparently white collar crime bounty hunters out there. Let's hire one. We'll give you all this money if you can convict five Wall Street CEOs with jail terms of ten years or more. How? I mean, that would be money well spent. Never mind super PACs. Never mind. Hey, how about this? Unions out there. Never mind trying to get this moderate Democrat or that moderate Democrat elected over that crazy right-wing Republican. 
pull your money in this direction. This will help us more in the long run. If we had some white-collar crime bounty hunters slamming door, prison doors on criminals in this country, then we'd have fewer insane criminal activities going on at the top of Wall Street, which means our pensions would be safer in the longer term, which means we would find, and they would probably call off some of their lobbying nutcases, and, and, and you could look into that, probably some misactivity or fraud going on there with the lobbying, uh, and then we could maybe pass some better regulations. This seems like the best first step to go to to clean up the freaking economic system. So get on that oatmeal and my union, the NEA, and and any other big unions and and you know groups of people. Let's let's pull some money. Never mind about let's let's take one election cycle off. How about that? I know people are we can't abandon the election cycles. How about this? Let's take one election cycle off. Okay, just one. All the money. Say to the Republicans, you know what? For the next four years, you can just have it. You just have it. We'll, we'll encourage people to vote, but we're not going to spend any money trying to encourage people to vote a certain way. Okay? For the next four years, you do whatever you want. We'll, we'll, you know, we're just not going to spend any money on it. And instead, all that money we would spend into super PACs and market research and focus groups and, and, and TV ads and all that hype and hoopla. Instead, if we spent all that money hiring some white-collar crime bounty hunters... To get get Boba Fett involved here, and 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 that for four years spent all the money on Boba Fett's, uh, and I wish if I were a real Star Wars nerd I could name some other bounty hunters, but I don't know any others. So you should all write in esp at fbesp.org and tell me the name of some other bounty hunters from Star Wars that could also be white collar crime bounty hunters, and just for four years spent all that time and money going after white collar criminals with the bounty hunter money instead that would serve us better in the short term or in the medium term than would trying to get another boring middle of the road Democrat who's going to promise a whole bunch of stuff about being the friend of the working man. And then when he gets into office, he ends up doing nothing because he's too closely friendly with Wall Street and big business and all the rest of it. Um, let's talk some education. Uh, there was an interesting piece in the newleftproject.org about education and reform in the UK. School wars, uh, the relentless march of academization and associated official propaganda, the forced academy battles with certain primary schools, the, quote, back to the 50s style curriculum, the ongoing draining of finance and political influence from local authorities, the assault on teachers, their conditions and their morale, the clear signal that for-profit schools are on the way, Tactically, the strategy has been to pick off school by school, area by area, so parents and governors and teachers often don't know what is going on in the rest of the country unless they are very well informed or linked up to a campaign group. Well, shiver me timbers. It sounds like the same thing that's going over here with the parent trigger and the business model reform movement is also happening in the UK. So don't get too smug over there, Brits, thinking, oh, these Americans are so stupid. It's coming for you, too. You better be very well informed. Oh, wait, you listen to me. You are well informed. No, you're not. I'm just joking. That's what Rush Limbaugh says. You're, you got to start. Now you got to go continue to be informed and go look into these things for yourselves. Um, and it's also in Canada. There's this article called uh, InsideTheReadingBox.com. Uh, this is 
probably something I'm going to be against. I don't remember. I put these notes together. I started collecting this stuff two weeks ago before we left on our trip. And then as soon as I got back, I already had a full clip of things to use on this show. Uh, so the article says, Coddled Teachers versus the Public. For those of you in other parts of Canada and the world, the fact is simple. Government spent a lot of money on dubious vote-getting schemes, how about a billion dollars for crappy security at the G20, and need to pay for some of those mistakes. In Ontario, the governing party, this is irrelevant since every party that has held power in the last 20 years has come after teachers, is pretending to negotiate what is ultimately for them non-negotiable. They want a billion plus dollars from teachers and they are going to get it. So, no, I take it back. The headline is ironic. Sorry. Uh, yeah, coddle teachers, quote unquote. It's The notion is that every political party in Canada goes after teachers in the same way that all political politicians in the United States do. And this person is awesome. Uh, Matthew Buchanan. No, that's the theme. Uh, it's called Inside the Reading Box, whatever. It's a musings on teaching and educational, quote unquote, reform. So I like this person. Um Anyway, whatever. Uh, yeah, so it's happening in Canada to, as well, this business model reform movement. Uh, oh, man, this is a heartbreaking story, but it's it's the kind of inspiring awesomeness that should inspire all of us. Cleveland teacher dies saving students. Uh, and this is from the Huffington Post, but they got links to the local news source. Laura Recco, a teacher at Positive Education Program School in Cleveland, Ohio, died Wednesday morning after rescuing two students from rough Lake Erie waters at the Cleveland Metro Parks Huntington Beach on Monday. Five students and four teachers from PEP, a nonprofit that works with children with autism and other special needs, were visiting the beach Monday morning when two students were pulled into deeper water by a wave, the Morning Journal reports. Reco, 49, went in after them and brought one student safely to shore before going back into the water after nine-year-old Diamond Harris. She was accompanied by five Metro Parks lifeguards, bystander Clint Cranes, and a male co-worker. The group pulled Harris out first before retrieving Reco, who was pulled under a wave she was unresponsive upon being brought to shore and this is a beautiful act of selflessness that you know makes me so proud to be a teacher god bless you laura recco and and shiva bless you and, and buddha bless you and allah bless you and every god in the world bless you alton bless you and uh thank you for your selflessness and that's that is an aspiration that all teachers can aspire to that we would be willing to give our lives for our students if it called for that um, and it reminds me of Liviu Labrescu. And for those of you who don't know, at Virginia Tech, there was a professor of mechanical engineering. And that's where I start to choke up a little bit because my dad was a professor of mechanical engineering. This man was a Holocaust survivor. Liviu Labrescu was. And when the Virginia Tech massacre happened, the guy Cho started shooting people at Virginia Tech. Liviu Labrescu, his classroom was like on the second or third story. I don't remember which. And he stood in front of the door and he got shot to death while his students climbed out of the window and they lived. And I have a picture of Livio Labrescu up in my classroom because I, I want to constantly remind myself that th that is the type of thing that all teachers should aspire to. We should all be willing to do that as teachers. Um... And I hope that God forbid, Allah forbid, you know, Shiva forbid, if anything like that ever happened in a school where I was, that I would have the quick thinking and the moral courage to do the same thing so that I could save my students, even if it meant I would not live. Um, meanwhile, uh, there was this article in the New York Times called Teach Your Children Well by Madeline Levine. It's actually a review of a book. Um, 
uh, via a woman named Madeline Levine. The book is called Teach Your Children Well. And this is what the review says. Levine's latest book is, in fact, a cri de coeur from a clinician on the front lines of the battle between our better natures, parents' deep and true love and concern for their kids, and our culture's worst competitive and materialistic influences, all of which she sees played out day after day in her private psychology practice in affluent Marin County, California. Levine works with teenagers who are depleted, angry, and sad as they compete for admission to a handful of big-name colleges and with parents who can't steady or guide them, so lost are they in the pursuit of goals that have drained their lives of pleasure, contentment, and connection. Quote, our current version of success is a failure, she writes. It's a damning and altogether accurate clinical diagnosis. Coming out of the article, this is what I talk to my AP students about in terms of money versus truth. There are far too many kids who are far too focused only on the money. And they've become convinced, like a lot of adults have become convinced, that our definition of success has to do with material plenty, televisions the size of your front room, or your man cave, or your media room, or whatever it is, uh, huge SUVs, or, you know, whatever fancy car, or top-of-the-line new ride you have, fancy clothes, and, and all these gadgets, and, and, and having money to do all the stuff you want to do. That's success. And what it leads to, in a lot of cases, obviously not every single case, but in a lot of cases, that drive for that material wealth leads people to have no time, uh, no leisure, and, or, you know, two weeks of leisure, start leisure, now, go, do, travel, uh, see things, uh, and then get back to work right away. Uh, constant after hours, off the clock work, constantly worried about what's happening at work, that drive for that the money, 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 that drive is driving people crazy. And it's happening to a lot of kids. And I told my students, look, I don't want that to happen to you. I don't know if it's happening or not. I worry that some of you have too much on your plate. And I also understand, I told my students, and I'll tell you all, I understand that, especially for kids going into college right now, look, I understand a lot of kids are going into college and coming out with insane amounts of student debt. And so if an AP class can help you get a credit or two or three or seven out of the way before you get to college, that can save you some money. I understand there's some very real influences there, some very real forces that make it necessary to try to do as much as you can to avoid, you know, any more money you owe the university. I get that. Okay, I understand. However, there comes a point where you also need to take care of yourself. And I worry that some of these kids are not taking care of themselves, not to mention the fact that if a kid's taking 100 AP classes, and then I say, read 20 pages of this book tonight, they go, I already got seven hours of homework in these other classes. Well, I don't know what to tell you. That's too much. If you can't do it, you can't do it. Maybe it can't be done to take 100 AP classes in one semester or one year. Anyway, uh, continuing with the review, this is from the book actually here, quote, the cost of this relentless drive to perform at unrealistically high levels is a generation of kids who resemble nothing so much as trauma victims, Levine writes. They become preoccupied with events that have passed, obsessing endlessly on a possible wrong answer or a missed opportunity. They are anxious and depressed and often self-medicate with drugs or alcohol. Sleep is difficult and they walk around in a fog of exhaustion. Gee, out of the article, Gee, that sounds familiar. Quote, other kids simply fold their cards and refuse to play. End quote. Again, sounds familiar to me. And I, I, I've seen kids who take AP tests and they don't pass a certain test after working really hard. 
and 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 I can't you know I think maybe I even did that I don't remember what AP test I took back in high school but I you know that's that it matters to people especially if you're told like that's because when I started teaching AP I was like okay you know what this test is ostensibly the end all and be all most courses don't have one test that means everything um, but AP does. And, and some of them, I think, have this attitude that, like, if I don't pass it, like, oh, my God, I'm a, I am a failure, right? Now, as an AP teacher, that's kind of how I feel for some students who I see them working real hard, and then they didn't pass the test for whatever reason. I think, oh, no, I failed them. I didn't, you know, I spent too much time talking about high-frequency trading. I, I don't really think I did, but, but that's the worry. You know, that's the voice of the little hater. And, and it can be a problem. And, and I especially think that this woman has a really interesting point to make because she sees it uh, in her practice of psychology, trying to help kids deal. And I think that's something we should all be scared of is having kids who resemble trauma victims because that's not what being a kid should be about. And it's not even what being a young adult or a teenager should be about. It's a, it should be about I'm going to explore the world. I'm going to get to understand the world I live in. I'm going to get prepared for my future job prospects but it shouldn't be like all oh, this pressure and these tests and all the rest of it i'm not gonna be able to deal with it ah! kill all humans kill all humans must kill all bender wake up i was having the most wonderful dream i think you were in it uh uh listen bender uh, uh where's your bathroom bath what bathroom what room Bathroom! What, what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Wanna kill all humans? Two items in the miscellaneous file this week. Nothing about killer robots. I'm sure we'll have some robotic stuff in the future, but... Uh, the first one's about Sarah Palin. Wait, three things. If you haven't seen the picture of Sarah Palin at Chick-fil-A, she posted it on Facebook and Twitter. She was like, stopped off at Chick-fil-A to support a great company. Yeah, thumbs up. All right, Sarah Palin. Oh, my God. Who gave the guy a can of gasoline in order to put out that fire? I don't remember where I heard that, but it was in a movie or TV show recently. Uh, and then Sarah Palin said to Mitt Romney, set hair on fire. I don't know what that means. Here's the quote. Romney, he has said before that he doesn't want to have to light his hair on fire. Well, there are a lot of his base supporters, independents, who are saying, well, light our hair on fire then. Remind us how important it is that we get engaged in this presidential election because it is the election of our lifetime. There's a drinking game for you. In the next 20 years, anytime you hear anybody say, this is the election of our lifetime, I've heard that in every election since I was a fetus, and it's it gets more ridiculous every time. And you know what? Bush versus Gore, in hindsight, could be considered the election of our lifetime. That's it. That's the only one I can think of. Okay. First of all, if you're going to watch your wording at the very least, Ms. Palin, the election of our lifetime, that means there's only one. I mean, I'm always backing off things. If I were to say that, I'd say, this is the, this is, let me back up, hang on, this is one of the five most important elections of our lifetime. At least do that, Sarah Palin. Come on, meet me halfway. Just do that, would you? Just, do, would you? Please. Uh, meanwhile, the, oh, wait, I thought this was that other story. I have two more things. There's four total. Scientists named blood-sucking parasite after Bob Marley. Uh, a <laughs> 
<laughs> the BunsenBurner.com, some science nerd site. A tiny blood-drinking crustacean parasite has been discovered by Paul Sickle of the Arkansas State University. Why did they say the Arkansas State University? Of the Arkansas, like Stephen Colbert, the USA Today. Dr. Sickle, an assistant professor of marine ecology, named the new species Nathia Marlii after legendary reggae artist Bob Marley. Dr. Sickle says of the new species, I named this species, which is truly a natural wonder, after Marley because of my respect and admiration for Marley's music. Plus, this species is as uniquely Caribbean as was Marley. End quote. So here's the other news story about Bob Marley, and I don't have a source for this, but i got to find out a source for this so that I can add a link on the show notes. Snoop Dogg is changing his name. He's now Snoop Lion. I'm not making this up. I'm not lying about this. You see what I did there? It's funny, isn't it? It's funny. Right, Stu? It's funny. Um... Snoop Lion, <laughs> oh my god, Snoop Dogg apparently went down to Jamaica and he hung out with a bunch of Rastafari and he was like, smoke weed, I already do that for shizzle. And so, but apparently they said, you embody the spirit of Rastafari uh, and he made some changes in his life and now he's like Snoop Lion, he's turning over a new leaf. Just as most Def became Yasin Bey, just as uh, Detroit Red became Malcolm X, so too apparently is Snoop Dogg turning into Snoop Lion. Now, in the article, Snoop says, quote, I always thought of myself as being the reincarnation of Bob Marley. And I'm a little suspicious of that. I don't know if Snoop Dogg is the first person I would think of when I think, who is today's, who's the Bob Marley of today? I don't know that Snoop is the first name. That, I mean, in terms of, you know, igniting tetrahydrocannabinol and pulling it into his lungs, okay, maybe. I can see the link there. But when it comes to get up, stand up, stand up for your rights, uh, no, not so much. I mean, Snoop and Dre did that song on the Chronic about how many people are ready to loot. Yeah, what you want to do? But that, you know, Bob Marley was all about like one love, like let's get together and feel all right, and like let's get some justice for the downtrodden, right? Like burning and looting. I mean, you know, Peter Tosh was a revolutionary, yeah. Bob Marley was a revolutionary, and I don't know that I would put Snoop in that same camp. Now, maybe that's the old Snoop. Maybe I don't know what Snoop Lion's going to come out with. I'll give him a chance. Maybe. It's possible. But I don't know if Snoop Lion has the same ring to it as Snoop Dogg. Um, L-I-O-N-S-N-O-P-L-I-O-N. It just doesn't have, it doesn't have the same sad. Zork. Zork, what's Zork? Oh, my dog oh, is bigger than him. I didn't say Zork. Uh, that's a Simpsons reference, by the way, in case you didn't know. Let's talk about hip-hop. Jean Grey! Oh, Jean Grey is awesome. And I'm going to give her a big shout-out. Everybody should listen to Jean Grey. Her best album by, like, a million years is Genius. She did it with Ninth Wonder. It's magnificent. You should totally listen to it. Even if it doesn't grab you on the very first listen, because it didn't grab me on the very first listen. I mean, parts of it did. But then I went back, and I, I got really focused on, like, li- I, I wrote it around, wrote around the lake listening to it. And I realized it's one of the best albums of the last 10 years easily top five album in the last 10 years gene gray genius with ninth wonder it's awesome and one of the most awesome things about it is these covers that she made because she took these four classic hip-hop covers uh public enemy takes a nation of millions to hold us back das effects uh 
dead serious. Um, black sheep, a, sheep, a wolf in sheep's clothing, and Raekwon the chef, uh, built only for Cuban links. And she recreated those four covers for the covers for Genius. And it's awesome because they all look exactly like the originals, but they're obviously Gene and Ninth Wonder, and they're just fantastic. Beautiful cover art, just to start with. Um, but the music's awesome as well. Ninth Wonder is an amazing producer, and he works beautifully with Gene Grey, as we see in the third track. Don't rush Tell me. Tell me what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got the beats that you just sing to for no reason. <laughs> uh, yeah. Sometimes you gotta get to know yourself. You gotta trap a little bit. Look at yourself from another perspective. So I try to do that. Uh, come on. Uh, listen, there's nothing like knowing yourself. Like the way I know the smoking's kinda broken my health. Like the way I know my flow don't make appropriate wealth. I can't change that. But funny I'm saying that when it's money I'm aimed at. I'll give a if you frame that or quote it I meant what I said Cause I wrote it Point noted I know I'm overly sensitive When it comes to well Just about everything And I'm so hard-headed Oh god isn't that awesome? I mean I just I love it It's so beautiful And the whole album is like that The more you listen to it The more you want to listen to it And and the more beautiful it is And the more eloquent her rhymes are And the more layers you realize I didn't understand That there's this track That was about abortion Until like the fifth time I listened to it and so her storytelling is deep, her wordplay is magnificent, her pace is her pacing, her timing, her flow, they're impeccable. I wanna I wanna pick it apart with scalpels and, and just show the hip hop class about how she's mastered the Seishura and, and the, the polysyllabic rhyming and just everything. It's wonderful. And the reason I'm mentioning Jean Grey right now is because well, partly it's because uh, Reddit, the hip hop heads subreddit said to me uh, before I left, like the day before I left, they said, hey, you should pick the song we listened to in the listening club this week. And I was like, oh my God, what an honor. Gene Gray, pick Genius, do Genius. And the people said, this is good. And they said, it's not great. Because I think hip hop heads, sorry, anybody who from hip hop heads, I think they, they're biased against women. Somebody posted this clip of, I think it was Rick Ross going, He's leaning back in a chair. I don't feel none of the female MCs. Uh, uh-uh, none of them. None of them can flow. Lauren Hill, a little bit. Look, that's it. None of the rest of them. Uh, uh-uh. I don't think any women MCs are any good. And I think a lot of people in the hip hop head subreddit feel that way. And that's messed up. Um, hello, MC Light, Roxanne Shantae, whatever. Uh, Queen Latifah, hello, hello. Stop saying hello. Um, anyway, but the other reason I'm mentioning Jean Grey right now is because when we were on our road trip, I discovered this podcast called Girl on Guy with Aisha Taylor. Tyler, excuse me, Aisha Tyler. It's awesome. It's a great podcast. Uh, she asks wonderful questions. It's this conversational style, and she follows up on stuff, and she tells stories from her life. So it's just a really good give and take. And as Aisha Tyler says in the interview with uh, Jean Grey, they're like of the same tribe of sort of like, African-American women who are interested in nerd culture, so-called nerd culture, right? And like comic books and video games and stuff. And so it's just such a cool discussion to see happening. And uh, Aisha Tyler does great interviews with lots of other people. She did one. Talib Kweli is really good. Uh, the interview with Greg Proops. Even Diane liked that. She doesn't really like Greg Proops, which I don't get that because I think Greg Proops is awesome. He's, oh, Tav- Ta- Kittens McTavish. Anyway, uh, yeah, Aisha Tyler's great, and the interview with Jean Grey is wonderful. Both of them are really just interesting and funny and sort of playing off each other, and you're not my mom, which made me think of the Musasha tapes where he goes, and don't be asking me any f***ing questions. You're supposed to be doing my fence. 
You're not my fucking father. Uh, so yeah, whatever. Listen to Jean Grey. She's awesome. Her best album is Genius, but she has some other albums as well. One of them's called The Orchestral Tapes, The Orchestral Files, excuse me. Uh, and she's got like a mixtape that came out recently, which is like cake or I don't remember what it's called. Look her up online. I'm sure she's got a website. Uh, I follow Jean Grey on Twitter. So if you want to find Jean Grey through my Twitter, you can go to at Duke Scath and then find her that way or whatever. Just do Jean Grey into... And of course, any... Duh! I should have mentioned from the jump. Duh! If you read comic books at all, you know Jean Grey. X-Men, what? Yes! Of course. Yes, that's why she... And she's... They talk about that on the Aisha Tyler thing. So listen to that and you'll hear her talk about where she got her name from and how much she has to do with comic books and, and all that stuff. She's considered using Storm, but... I mean, Friends, I'm not Romans, you. cut you, man. Lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near. But don't <laughs> panic. You can't function if you live in fear. Pay attention. You gotta listen to hear. Time for the quote of the week. I, we're well over an hour now, so I'm just gonna race through this. Walter Bagahot was a... a 1826 to 1877, was a British businessman, essayist, and journalist who wrote about literature, government, and economics. He said, quote, In truth, poverty is an anomaly to rich people. It is very difficult to make out why people who want dinner do not ring the bell. End quote. All right, that's it, folks. Uh, show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast, as always, are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which can be found on the internet at fbesp.org slash synapse. That's Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia I've made and lots of other stuff. Shout-outs this week to Avery S., who gave me some awesome feedback and links uh, about the GI Bill, and John Mouse uh, provided feedback on the show. Appreciate that. And for the Spec Ops games, thank you, John. And Cobra Strike, or whatever your name is. Uh, CPM for the note about Tito. And Diane, thank you for being awesome. And everyone we stayed with while we were on the road. Christy and Garrett. Garrett, I am reading warning signs. I'm on page 30. Max and Abby and Mark and Janine and Avit and my mom and Mary and Darren and Katie and Diane's dad and Jane and Annie and all the people we hung out with watching the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. That was awesome. And then shout out to the East Timor athletes uh, at the Olympics. I think there were like two or three. Go! Viva Timor Leste! Uh, uh, and uh, all the cats and dogs along the way, you were a lot of fun to hang out with as well. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things that I forgot to cut out. What can I say? I'm a very busy man. Deal with it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles. ESP at FBESP.org. Duke Scaff on Twitter. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. What? What are you listening for? The show is over. Stop listening, idiot.